And we'll begin reading at verse 16. And I'll leave out the parenthetic in verse 17 just so you can get the flow. For this reason it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise may be certain to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, in the sight of him whom he believed, even God. He's the father of us all in the sight of God. And then the parenthetic, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. You know, God changed Abram's name to Abraham, father of a multitude of nations. I was reading something from uh, Donald Barnhouse, and uh, I've mentioned uh, many times of what it must have been like for Abraham to change his name when he was a hundred years old, and uh, he sits down at the table in the morning and says to Sarah, good morning, princess. She had her name changed too, and she says to him, good morning, father of a multitude. That was a step of faith, but Barnhouse points out that uh, it was even more so in the eyes of other people. Uh, for you to say, they say, what's your name? And you say, Father of a Multitude. And they say, oh, well, really, you must have a lot of children. How many do you have? None. You know, uh, he said that he knew a man named uh, Meek. And uh, he had been asked a thousand times, have you inherited the earth? You know, you're meek, have you inherited the earth? Another fellow was named Wrench, and he had all kinds of jokes, and a lot of us, I mean, I have with the name Lighter. You know, you have all kinds of jokes made about your name. But think of the jokes made about the name Father of a Multitude on a guy that doesn't have any children. Uh, it was, must have been a trial, and it was a step of faith. For Abraham to take this name, uh, amazing step of faith. But he took the name Abraham, and Abraham is the father of a multitude. Every true believer. He's the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the sight of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope, against hope, he believed, in order that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your seed be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he had promised he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. For the past several weeks, we've been considering the nature of Abraham's faith. And... The question comes up, why is it important to consider the nature of Abraham's faith? Well, you could say, well, he's a good example to us. 
of uh, the way we ought to believe God. And that's true, but he's much more important than that. Paul says Abraham was not just an example. He was a pattern. He is the father of the faithful. Uh, Some time ago, I think it was Life magazine, ran a, a, a special issue related to Judaism. And a rabbi in there, more than once he made the statement, as to who the most important Jew who ever lived was. Who do you suppose he said? Knowing what you know about Judaism, who do you suppose he said was the most important Jew, the greatest Jew? What's that? Kidding. (laughs) I can't hear anyway. (laughs) Somebody tell me what everybody said. What do you think a Jew would say? No, no. A Jew would say Moses was the most important. See, that's the problem. You're thinking like Christians. You see that? This is amazing, isn't it? To a Jew, that guy said more than once in that article, the most important Jew, the greatest Jew who ever lived, was Moses. And that is exactly what was wrong. And Paul corrects that. He says, no, 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 the greatest Jew. I mean, we're talking not in terms of personal characteristics and so on, but in terms of his position. The greatest Jew who ever lived was Abraham. He believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now Moses was the instrument, and of course you talk about the personal things in Moses' life and his greatness as an individual. Of course, that's a totally different thing. But in terms of importance of position and so on, clearly, Paul says Abraham, he's the one. Because Abraham, in Abraham, God was setting the pattern for justification by faith. Moses, through Moses, he was giving something that was intended with the purpose of driving us to Christ whereby we might be justified by faith just like Abraham was. So it's an amazing thing. And Paul centers his attention in all of Romans 4 on Abraham. And in these verses that we've just read, he particularly centers his attention on the faith of Abraham. Because the theme of all of Romans 4 is justification by faith. And the question comes up, what kind of faith are we talking about? What's it mean to believe God? What kind of faith is it that justifies? There's some faith that doesn't justify. Temporary faith, superficial faith, human faith. What kind of faith is it that Abraham had? Because Paul says in verse 12 that all Christians follow in the steps of the faith of their father Abraham. If you're a Christian, you're following in his steps. And what we read in verse 16, we are of the faith of Abraham. Same faith, same... Uh, same thing that we have entered into. We are of the faith of Abraham. So when we look at the faith of Abraham, we're looking at the characteristics of all true biblical faith. And so the question then comes up, what are the characteristics of true biblical faith? And thus far we've looked at eight of these. We're not going to go back and review all those, but I do want to remind you of the three that we looked at last week. First of all, we saw last week that true biblical faith faces reality. Verse 19, Abraham considered his own body now dead and the deadness of Sarah's womb. And we looked at the textual question there and so on. 
last time. I won't go into that again. But Abraham considered his own body now dead. Faith does not close its eyes to reality. It's not some kind of escapism. It's not some kind of pretending or so-called positive confession. Uh, Abraham was well aware of the fact that he was too old to have children, and he faced the fact squarely. Genesis 17, 17, Will a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Will Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? So he faced that squarely, and yet he still didn't become weak in faith. Why not? Well, because weak faith doesn't come from facing reality from facing the facts. Weak faith comes from not facing all the facts. That's the problem with weak faith. Uh, Peter was out there walking on the water. Those winds and those waves were reality. And the idea of closing your eyes and trying to make a positive confession that the winds and the waves aren't there would get you on the bottom of the lake. That's all it would do. But the problem was not that he was looking at the reality of the winds and the waves, but he, there was one much bigger reality right in front of him that he wasn't looking at. That was his problem. And so, true biblical faith faces reality. It's not pretending, it's not escapism. Second thing we saw last week was that true biblical faith does not waver. Verse 20, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver he didn't stagger in unbelief now that's a great encouragement to us as we saw because if you look back to the old testament it looks like abraham's wavered and staggered on numerous occasions so what is paul saying here i mean here abraham lies to pharaoh and he has this uh, this son by hagar and several things it looks like he wavered so what's paul saying well he's saying in the overall course of his life he did not waver he's looking at the long haul you see he's looking at the uh, the faith of abraham over a period of time somebody put it like this his unbelief was momentary his faith was constant uh, he you know he he responds with a laugh, you know, at the thought of having a child when he's 100 years old. But that was a momentary thing. And his faith was a constant thing over a period of years. Now, that's a characteristic of true biblical faith. It may waver in many particulars, but over the course of time, it keeps on believing and keeps on trusting and keeps on with God. Biblical faith proves itself over time as being genuine. Praise the Lord if you're still here. I'm not talking about being here in this building, but here in the sense of still wanting to know God and still following God and still pressing on. You see somebody, you come back after 15 years, they may have started out terribly weak and have all kinds of failings and struggles, but you come back 15 or 20 years later and they're still wanting to follow the Lord and they're still seeking Him and they're still praying and crying out to God, that's a great encouragement because that's a characteristic of true biblical faith. So, uh, that was the second thing we saw last time. Then thirdly, we saw that true biblical faith actually grows stronger under trials. Verse 20, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God 
being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And the language here, as I understand in the, in the Greek, is this idea of growing strong. Um, this is a supernatural thing we saw last week. Superficial faith, human faith, grows weaker under trials. Let me give you the proof of that. Luke eight thirteen. Jesus says, Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. You see, it's just shallow. There's just a little bit of dirt on top of the rock and go, springs up quickly. These have no firm root. They believe for a while. They believe in some sense. But they only believe for a while. But when temptation, but in time of temptation, fall away. And in the parallel passages, it's, passage, it says, when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, they fall away. So here's somebody that has uh, some kind of faith, and what happens when tribulation comes along is they fall away. Now it's just the opposite for a Christian. We saw in Romans 5 last week, and Lord willing, we'll get to this eventually, that for the Christian, tribulation, Paul says, works perseverance. That's amazing. You want to see a Christian press on and dig deeper and send down roots, put them in the fire. Because tribulation for the believer works, not falling away, but going on, continuing on. Amazing thing. Um, Peter there in Luke 22, he goes through this major discouragement, denying the Lord, utter failure, uh, is afraid of this servant girl, and lo and behold, well, you think that would make him so discouraged he's just liable to give up and go out and shoot himself. That's not, that's what happened to Judas. But what happened to Peter? He says, when you turn again, you will, and when you do, you're going to be stronger. Strengthen the brethren. Help them. That's supernatural. How could it be that he would become stronger by this failure? Well, the way it could be is this. Peter's faith was in God's hand. And Jesus says, I have prayed for you. I've looked to the one who's really taking care of your faith. I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you turn again, strengthen the brethren. So... True biblical faith rests in God's hands and He makes it stronger in the midst of opposition and trial. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. Isn't that wonderful? God is the one putting us through that fire. Well, what else then can we learn from Abraham about true biblical faith? There's four things that I want to look at today briefly. This may be the final message on these. Um, there's just so many that could be brought out from this. But at any rate, today I want to look at four things. The first characteristic that we want to look at today, true biblical faith has an element of certainty about it, an element of assurance or certainty. Verse 21, being fully assured that what he had promised he was able also to perform. Now, I'm not going to say much about this because I don't know much about it. But it is here. I've given you one example of that 
over and over, and that is the Christian is has this certainty and assurance concerning the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Uh, if you come up to a Christian and say, guess what, they found the bones of Jesus in the grave last week, the Christian immediately, there's something that springs up and says, that's a lie. Because you know that Christ rose from the dead. You know that. There's that element of certainty there, and the reason there that certainty is there, I mean, how can you be so sure? Well, because that faith has been wrought in your heart by the Holy Spirit. It's been given to you. It's a supernatural thing. Um, that's what Paul's talking about when he says, no man can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. How do you... You can say Jesus is Lord, but when a Christian says Jesus is Lord... He's saying that through clenched teeth while people beat him to death. You see, it's something he knows inescapably because it's been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. There's a certainty there. That's why Paul says there in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. Because you've got true biblical saving faith. That's the gift of God. It's something given to you. That's the only way you can make that confession. That's the only way you can believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. As you've seen something, there's been a revelation. Now there's, uh, I say, this element of assurance and certainty. Uh, here, they, here they are walking down the road, the disciples with the Lord, And the Lord turns to them and He says, Who do men say that I am? Well, some say this, some say that. That's that's all you're going to have from yourself. But He says, Who do you say that I am? Peter says, I believe, I think, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's not what He said, is it? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. There was a, a confession there, you see. It wasn't an I think and it wasn't an I believe. It was a confession of truth. You're the Christ. Where does He get this certainty? Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's where the certainty came from. It was a revelation to His heart. I don't know when that happened. Maybe it was when the Lord... uh, told him to cast the net in and they pulled up all those fish and Peter throws himself down and says, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. Well, what does catching a bunch of fish have to do with sinfulness? See, that was a revelation. He realized. Now, other people saw those miracles and they just thought, boy, free bread, you know, come on. That's different. Peter saw those fish and, and he fell down because he was sinful. The work of the Holy Spirit. Well, true biblical faith has this element of assurance and certainty in it. If you hear someone say, I tried Christianity. I tried that and it didn't work. I used to believe on Jesus. One thing you can be certain is, they never did believe on Jesus. See, you can be certain of that. You might as well try to deny your own existence as try to deny the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ once you've seen it. You cannot escape Him. Gresham Machen was uh, 
there in Germany studying in a, a place that was loaded with liberal theology and unbelief in the Bible, an acid, an acid bath of cynicism and unbelief and skepticism. And he'd go into those classrooms and those learned professors would um, ridicule the New Testament and talk about all these myths and this myth of Jesus did this and that and the other. And he said, I'd go back to my room and read the Gospel of Mark. And I knew it had to be true. What is that? The revelation. There's that element of certainty that's given in true biblical faith. Well, secondly, true biblical faith gives glory to God. Notice this in verse 20. He grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he had promised he was able also to perform. Now, this is more than just a passive thing. What do I mean by that? Well, you could say uh, joy gives glory to God, or peace gives glory to God, or obedience gives glorifies God that's that's true and but that's sort of a passive thing what we're talking about here is is that this is something that faith actively does it centers its attention on God and ascribes to him the glory due his name you see it feeds on the the God himself and glorifying God. It gives glory to Him. It centers its attention on God. It occupies itself with God. It praises Him for who He is. It gives Him credit for all the power and goodness that, it, that He has. And it concentrates on Him and focuses on Him. That's what it means. Abraham grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. You see, he was actively doing that. Not just that faith in some passive way brings glory to God, but it actively glorifies God, centers its attention on Him. And Paul tells us here that that was one of the characteristics of Abraham's faith. It had to be. How else could he have taken Isaac up there on the mountain and come to the point of, of uh, being willing to put him to death if he hadn't have been concentrating on God? He must have been concentrating on God. And I think especially... He was concentrating on the power of God. That was something, and it's, in fact, it says it right here, being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. I think Abraham was, when he thought about God, he was concentrating on the fact that God's able to do this, His almighty power. In fact, that was specifically what God said that Abraham was to do. I keep thinking of something here that I'm afraid I left out that I wanted to say. Let me just look. I might come back to it. I did leave it out. Sorry about that. (laughs) Abraham centered his attention on God particularly in the fact that God was almighty. I think that's the case. Because what happened? When, he met, when God made this promise to Abraham, He said to Abraham, is anything too difficult for the Lord? He specifically said that. And right here it says that he grew strong in faith, believing that he was able to perform. 
And there was another place in Genesis uh, 17 where God appeared to him and he said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. So I think one thing for sure, when Abraham was thinking about God and concentrating on God and giving glory to God, he was thinking about how powerful he was. Now think about this. God gives you a promise and your first response is incredulity. You just laugh at it. And God says, what's wrong? What, what are you, what's the laugh about? Is anything too hard for me? I am God Almighty. Now think about that. You center your attention on, and I think, I think surely that's what was going on right through. But, for example, when Abraham is walking up that mountain, he's thinking, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? He is God Almighty. He's God Almighty. He's Almighty. He has all power. Nothing's too difficult for God. You see how that faith centers its attention on who God is and gives Him credit for who He is. It actively glorifies God. And so he gets to thinking about He's Almighty. He's Almighty. Glory to God. You see, he's glorifying God. He's able to perform this. It centers its attention on Him and gives Him credit for who He is. What I forgot to mention was in this area of certainty, uh, it says that Abraham was fully assured that what he had promised he was able also to perform. It fits in with this thing of, of sacrificing Isaac. Abraham got to the place where he was so certain about God and about His promise that he was ready to kill and offer up as a burnt offering his son if God told him to do it. Now that's incredible. That's an element. I mean, the more impossible things became, the more certain Abraham was. This element of certainty. And it has to do with the fact that faith glorifies God. It looks at Him for who He is. It's what he, who He says He is. That story I told you about Gresham Machen. What is it? He just got there and read, read the Gospel of Mark. What was happening? He was just looking at God. That's all it was. And you, you, God's wonderful. This couldn't have been made up by men. You see, He's glorifying God. Faith in its very nature centers its attention on God and gives Him the glory that He deserves. I don't know how well I've gotten that across, but uh, this is part of the reality of faith. It's occupied with God. It gives glory to God. It concentrates on Him. It gives Him credit for being who He is. Now, poor Peter walking on the water. We keep going back to him. But what, what did he not do? He didn't give glory to God. He didn't concentrate on the person of Christ. Now suppose he had stopped looking at the winds, the wind and the waves long enough to just start looking at Christ and say, Lord, there you are. And I remember how you uh, cast the demons out of that Gadarene demoniac. And I remember how you raised so-and-so. And you're walking on the water. And you're the Son of God. You see, all, and you just start concentrating on the object of faith, and all of a sudden, all this stuff, give, you're giving glory to God. And your faith grows stronger, and you give more glory to God. That's the nature of biblical faith. It, it actively gives God credit for His power and His truthfulness and His person. 
The terrible thing about unbelief is, is that it thinks low thoughts of God and insults God. It actively, instead of actively glorifying, it actively dishonors him. Let me give you some examples. Here's the devil in the garden talking to Eve, and he says, did God say that? You can't trust him. He's holding out on you. He knows that if you do that, if you would take that, you'd be like God. And what's unbelief do? Unbelief casts a doubt on God's word, on his character. He's not got the he's got, got my best interest in mind. He's a liar. And every time we get into unbelief, what we're saying is God is bad, he's mean, he's he's narrow and tight, and he's a liar. He doesn't really care about me. Think of those disciples out there on the on the water. Lord, don't you care? That we're perishing? You see, that's unbelief. He doesn't care. Unbelief insults God. Faith actively glorifies Him. Numbers 14. You remember those spies that were uh, looking over the land? They came back and they said, this is an evil land that devours its inhabitants. If we go in there, it'll eat us alive. You know what that's saying is, what kind of a God is the God who would bring you to a land like this just to destroy you? You see, unbelief insults God and His character. Well, the more we concentrate on God and who He is and what He's like, the stronger our faith will be. And the stronger our faith is, the more we'll actively glorify Him and give Him credit for being who He is. That's one thing I, those of you that remember Keith McLeod, that's one thing that I remember about him. He was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit because he's always concentrating on God. That's what it was. I remember him saying, he says, God, he didn't say God can do anything. If he had, he would have said it with power. God can do anything. But what he said was, God will do anything. He kept saying that. God will do anything. He was full of faith, glorifying God. Well, thirdly, third characteristic of true biblical faith, and that is this. There are degrees of true biblical faith. Verse 20, Abraham grew strong in faith. That's encouraging. Because faith can go from a weaker state to a stronger state. And you can have very small faith and yet have it be real. Poor Peter. We'll go back to him again. Walking on the water. What did the Lord say to him when he grabbed his hand? O ye of no faith. He didn't say that. O ye of little faith. Why did you doubt? Those disciples out there in the boat that was filling up with water. Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? He says, O ye of little faith. Little faith. But it's a blessed thing if you have even a little real faith because to everyone who has, more shall be given and he shall end up with an abundance. More shall be given. I'm so thankful that the disciples came to the Lord with that prayer, Lord, increase our faith. It's scriptural and right to ask that, to to ask the Lord to increase our faith. And there's none of us that I know of that don't need a little bit more faith than what we've got. 
and we can go to God and, and we can go to the Lord. And look at this. They, they came and said, Lord, increase our faith because they felt the same way you do, and that is they realized they couldn't increase it themselves. You can't do it yourself. But He is able to increase our faith and He will do that. How much more can we take? I was going to talk a little bit about how our faith grows. Uh, let me just say a couple of things briefly. When we talk about our faith growing, you know, I don't think there's any how-tos, but the Bible does tie it in with certain things. One of the things it ties it in with is prayer. You remember when they couldn't cast out that demon, they said, why couldn't we do it? Jesus says, because of the littleness of your faith. But in the parallel passage, He says, because this kind doesn't come out by anything but by prayer. See how that ties in? It ties prayer together with faith. And whenever and, and Jude, he says, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. And you know from experience that when you pray, if you, ever, if you get through to God, your faith is strengthened. I mean, I've seen that happen many times in the men's prayer meeting. Come in there dead and dull, and what's the use? You know, there's no need praying. And by the time it's about halfway over, your heart, your whole attitude is totally different. What happened? You got in touch with God. And you got some faith and some strength. Faith grows in the place of prayer. It grows in the place of repentance and holiness. Matthew 16.4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. Why are they so unbelieving? Because they got so much sin in their life. You know, there's reasons why your faith's so weak if you've got sin in your life. When you repent, get things right, totally different. Matthew 17.17, 17, oh, unbelieving and perverted generation. Unbelief tied with perversion. So faith grows in the place of repentance and holiness. It grow, thirdly, it grows in the place of obedience. John seven seventeen. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know. It's not a problem of not being able to know whether Christ is true. If you're willing to obey Him and follow Him, Deuteronomy eleven eight. You shall therefore keep every commandment which I am commanding you today, so that you may be strong and go in and possess the land. You see, obey God, strength comes in your heart. Well, enough on that. Last thing then, true, true biblical faith inherits the promises of God. You go back to verse 18. It says, In hope against hope he believed, in order that he might become a father of many nations. According to that which had been spoken, so shall your seed be. So, Abraham inherited the promise of God through faith. And uh, in verse 22, Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So uh, because of his faith or through his faith, he inherited these promises. Now, uh, one last verse we'll look up on this. Hebrews 6. It's a good reminder concerning Abraham. Hebrews 6.11 
and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. So we are supposed to be followers, it says, verse 12, imitators, followers of those who through faith and patience inherit. Following the steps of the faith of our father Abraham. Abraham believed God, he rested in God, and lo and behold, God proved to be faithful and the things that God had said came to pass in his life. And uh, it's a wonderful thing to think of this. Joshua 21.45 Not one of the good promises which the Lord has made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Isn't that wonderful? The good promises... Not one of the good promises failed. All came to pass. This thing's not in vain. It's not, we're not just whistling through the graveyard to be disappointed in the end. That's not what's going to happen. I mean, you look at how weak your faith is and how, how many times you fail and so on, you get to feeling like maybe nothing's ever going to come of it. That's not true. Every single one of His promises are going to come to pass for His children. Joshua twenty three fourteen. Now behold, today, this is Joshua speaking, today I'm going the way of all the earth. He's getting ready to die. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you not one of them has failed. So Christians will inherit. And Abraham did inherit promises. So will we if we cast ourselves on the same God that he cast himself upon. Amazing, isn't it, how much uh, is here concerning the faith of Abraham, concerning the nature of faith. Um... Martin Lloyd-Jones said that this section here is one of the greatest sections on faith in the Bible, including Hebrews 11. You remember how there's so much on faith in Hebrews 11? Well, it never had occurred to me in that way, but we ought to think of it like that. Somebody says, tell me about faith. Well, you ought to think of Hebrews 11. But you also ought to think of Romans 4. Say, well, look at this. Now, this is the way faith is. It believes God. It believes God who raises the dead and calls those things which don't exist as if they existed. It believes the promises of God. It perseveres and it continues on over the long haul. It grows stronger under trials. It focuses on God and gives glory to Him, glorifies Him actively, thinking about Him. It doesn't dishonor Him. It has an element of certainty in it. It has an element of hope in it. It goes against all outward circumstances. See, all those things are right here in this passage. Well, may the Lord 
Help us to follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham and to inherit the same promises that he did. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much. Every single person here who can say with Peter, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. We're so thankful that you opened our eyes and revealed to us who you really are and worked in our hearts. We think of what Wesley said, Faith in thy power thou seest I have, for thou that faith hast wrought. Dead souls thou raisest from their grave and seekest worlds from naught. Lord, uh, we're, we're so thankful for the supernatural faith you put in our hearts. Uh, we know what it is to know Christ according to the flesh, just like Paul did. He said, there was a time when I knew Christ according to the flesh. He didn't have any idea who he was. But he says that's not true any longer. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. Lord, we're so thankful that... Uh, that you've made new creations of every one here who's, who's your child. I pray for those that only know you according to the flesh, that you would open their eyes to see who you are. And Lord, we're so thankful that this uh, saving faith is something that you began and something that you will complete, that you sustain it and uh, cause it to grow. And give us more. We just say, Lord, increase our faith. Have mercy upon us. We have not even a grain of mustard seed. You said that. It's so little. So pitiful. How much we dishonor you by our unbelief. And uh, Lord, we pray. Cause us to grow strong in faith. To give glory to you. And be fully persuaded that everything you've promised, you're able also to perform. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we have our meal time together and ask the Lord to help us to fellowship and to redeem this time. It's a rare opportunity.